Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back, fellow time travelers. Uh, great to have you with me for the next step on our long journey. Just before we get started, though, I want to tell you a little bit about my Patreon site, which helps to support the making of this podcast, which is and always will be free. The Patreon site is full of history and comment, my musings on the modern world and how it connects with the past. Every week I film a new vodcast, which is exclusive to Patreon, and it's made here at my home in Stirling. For folks who are new to the site, there's a great archive of videos to catch up on, and we also run the odd competition or two. To join me, simply go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver. Be great to have your support. Okay, now it's time to steal yourselves for this week's love letter to the British Isles as we confront Nazi atrocities committed on British territory during World War II. Cue the music. That kind of ideology can get up a momentum and change the world in the blinking of an eye. In this episode, on a beautiful set of islands, we come face to face with the frightening ugliness of the Second World War. Jealously guarded by English kings, queens and the British government for centuries. For the first time in a thousand years, they're wrestled away, captured by Hitler giving him a toehold on British territory. An army of slave labourers is brought in to build formidable defences. The merciless mistreatment they receive serves as a terrifying mark, just what the Third Reich was capable of. And the occupation, a chilling reminder of how close Hitler came. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last episode, we came ashore with thousands of brave Allied soldiers as they trained for D-Day. Where are we this week? In this episode, Paul, we're still in the midst of the Second World War, but we're leaving the British mainland behind and sailing to the Channel Islands, to the British territory which was invaded and captured by the Nazis. We're stepping ashore with an army of slave labourers, thousands strong, who were shipped in to build defences that would keep out any threat of liberation from the British. The horror and mistreatment meted out to them is a stain on all humanity, 
We're on Nazi-occupied Alderney Island. Paul, we're in a popular holiday destination this time. For many people, the Channel Islands. And specifically, we're on Little Alderney. Which, I would guess, for folk that are used to places like Jersey and Guernsey and maybe Sark, Alderney might be less familiar. It's possibly not a name that registers particularly strongly for people at the mention of the Channel Islands, but I could be wrong. All I can say is that before I went to Alderney to make a little documentary film about what had happened there during the Second World War, it was unfamiliar to me. Of all the islands of that little archipelago, Alderney is the one closest geographically to Britain. But having said that, it's also the one that's closest to France. And when you look at the Channel Islands, you know, if you look at a map of Britain or the south of Britain and, and France, you can't help but notice that it does seem odd that they belong to us and not to France. Because they're right there in the, in the vicinity of the Cotentin Peninsula, which is the peninsula that's home to the D-Day beaches. Utah, Omaha, Sword, Juno and Gold are in the Cotentin Peninsula and the, the Channel Islands are very much within reach of that stretch. And I'm sure most people know that there's something funny about the relationship between the Channel Islands and Britain, but they maybe wouldn't be able to put it into words. I think they're safely described as possessions of the British Crown, but they don't belong, they're not part of the United Kingdom. They've also never been part of the European Union. They are Crown dependencies but they sit apart. They're under the protection of the United Kingdom. You know, militarily, anything happening there, they would look to Britain for help in that regard. But in all day-to-day respects, they sit apart. In fact, they're not even one thing. There's the bailiwick of Jersey, and there's the bailiwick of Guernsey. And those two bailiwicks look after parts of and and islands within the archipelago. So all in all, the Channel Islands are quite an oddity. They're a hangover from another time. Once upon a time, the French king bought off the Vikings. This is in the 10th century. Around the same time, really, that they were making a pest of themselves all over Britain. They'd found France, and in their inimitable fashion, they were sailing up the Seine and other French rivers and arriving at cities and making their presence felt in a way that the French didn't like. Um, It had got to the point where the, the Vikings would just turn up every now and again and pretty much demand protection money. We won't hurt you. We'll go away if you give us buckets of silver, which is what the French had been doing. But then eventually, in the early part of the 10th century, a French king, Charles the Simple, simple meant he wasn't simple-minded. At the time, the the epithet meant that he was straightforward. Dealing with them was simple. Charles the Simple bought off a Viking warlord, a Viking king called Rollo, and he gave him a great big chunk of France. He said, look, take that, have that, and there's an end of it. Stop bothering us. And also, please take on the responsibility for defending us 
against Mora Your Sort. And that territorial acquisition became Normandy, literally the land of the Northmen, the land of the Vikings. And the Duchy of Normandy persisted ever since. It still persists. By the time of 1066 and all that, William the Bastard from the Duchy of Normandy that came across, conquered and became William the Conqueror. So William the Bastard became William the Conqueror. He also had the Duchy of Normandy and now he was the King of England. And so after that, the Channel Islands was part of the Duchy of Normandy and so it was part of the collective parcel of territories that were owned by William the Conqueror. So he had the Duchy of Normandy, he had England, and part of the Duchy of Normandy was the Channel Islands. And then, eventually, a settlement had to be reached. England and France were always fighting with one another, and one of the settlements decreed that the King of England surrendered his claims on the Kingdom of France, and in return, the King of France surrendered his claim on the Channel Islands. So the the Channel Islands were retained by the British Crown at that point and have remained, well, all bar the shouting, there's been some disputes and claims and counterclaims over the centuries, but broadly speaking, that explains the strange little hang-on of the Channel Islands to Britain. But they are so close to France, aren't they? Yeah, oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, any any rational person would look at them on the map and say that must be part of France. But they're not. But then again, they're not really part of anywhere. They're crown possessions, but they're independent. They do their own thing. I mean, famously, you know, Jersey has its own tax rules and there's, there's all sorts of different rules that don't apply anywhere else in the United Kingdom. And that's because the Channel Islands sit apart. They're with us, but they're not of us. But they have UK passports. That's a very good question, yes, I'm sure they do. Yes, it's under the Crown possession. But the point is that for all these centuries, for a thousand years, the Channel Islands, that archipelago, has been jealously guarded by kings of England. Kings and queens of England have always been very protective of it, always suspecting that at any moment the French were going to swoop in and reclaim them. But only once in a thousand years have we lost control of them. And that was in the Second World War. Adolf Hitler landed on them, came and got them, squatted on them in 1940. And he stayed there, him and his Nazis, until, well, until the end of the war, until 1945, when they were driven out and lost the rest of Europe as well. But for as long as it lasted, when he arrived, when Hitler and his cohort arrived in 1940, the dream was still alive at that point of invading mainland Britain. And it all seemed to be going his way for a while. Famously, Britain was bombarded by the Luftwaffe to soften us up for invasion. But there was the Battle of Britain, September 1940. Hurricanes and spitfires, the burning blue. And that was the beginning of the turning of a tide. Historians hotly dispute what significance there was, if any, to the Battle of Britain strategically. And they say that Hitler abandoned his plans for invasion of Britain because, frankly, he had bigger fish to fry at that point, namely Russia. He had to turn and deal with other matters. And so a lot of historians say, you know, the Battle of Britain was, was showboating by Winston Churchill. So it's hotly debated how significant the Battle of Britain was, but, I mean, many people, the other side of the argument is that it was a great boost for morale, boost for confidence 
It was a victory that all of Britain could get behind and find itself united behind Winston Churchill, behind the Royal Air Force. We had bloodied the nose of the Luftwaffe and all the rest of it. But despite the fact that the plan to invade mainland Britain was abandoned in 1940, he had the Channel Islands and he, he being Hitler, was determined to hold on to them. So he'd got in there on 30th of June 1940 and then he, he started to dig in when he realised that he couldn't get hold of the rest of Britain at that point. He dug in like a tick into the flank of a deer. He just burrowed down. Something like a third of the population, maybe 30,000 people, had been evacuated from Jersey and Guernsey. They're the two big islands. And they had come away in the weeks and months before the Germans took control. They could see the, you know, the writing was on the wall. They knew he was coming. And those that kind of wanted a way came away. Some people stayed behind. They decided that they weren't abandoning their homes and their farms and, and, their, and their lives. And so they stayed. And some of those, well, they had to find ways to live with the German occupation. Some of them collaborated without a shadow of a doubt. But it was a fight for survival, and I'm certainly of the opinion that unless you had been there and experienced what was experienced by those people trying to survive, I don't really think there's any justification. I don't think there's much of a point in judging them. What were you going to do if you were there in your farm and you'd been invaded by, by the Third Reich? What would you have done? It's a difficult question to answer if you weren't there, so I fight shy of being judgmental about what anybody did in order to survive there. But that's to say Jersey and Guernsey and but Alderney. Here we come to the point of the love letter this week. Alderney was different. It's a tiny sliver of a thing. It's three and a half miles long and a mile and a half wide. It had been populated by about 1,500 people prior to the invasion, but all but very, very few stayed behind on Alderney. The vast majority came away. Actually, when I filmed on Alderney, I met a, a man who was elderly then. He was called Butch. And he kept a grocer's shop on Alderney. And he had been evacuated from... He'd been a teenager when the invasion was coming. And like most others, he, he was evacuated out. And he came to England and he, he lived out the war in England. And then he came back. As soon as he could, he came back to Alderney. And he said he had, apart from the four years, five years that he spent evacuated, he'd never been away from Alderney before or since. He'd lived out his entire life on this little island. Swam in the sea every day. He was still mostly swimming in the sea every day, although by the time I met him, he was about 80, or in his 80s. I think he started out working in the grocer shop, and then latterly he had owned it. Imagine, he's lived his life. <laughs> he lived his life on that tiny little island. Wasn't, wasn't really interested in going anywhere else. However, while he was away, something else happened on Alderney. I mean, when I say few remained behind, we're talking maybe no more than half a dozen. It was a blank canvas. And when the Germans turned up, they painted something ugly on that blank canvas. As I said, Hitler was absolutely determined and committed to holding on to the Channel Islands. He knew the British would want them back. And so he went to ridiculous lengths to fortify them. A 3,000-strong garrison turned up on Alderney. And they began, basically, they sought out almost to cover it in concrete and barbed wire. It was extraordinary, the level of 
construction that went on on Alderney. Gun positions, reinforced concrete, barbed wire and all the rest of it. So that Hitler could, as it were, sleep at night knowing that nobody could get on to Alderney. However, 3,000 strong garrison notwithstanding, the real work of all the construction was done by prisoners. So you're talking, obviously, Russian prisoners of war, political prisoners from within Germany, but the majority were Jews. Jewish people, particularly, who'd been rounded up in France. But Jews from all over were brought in to be forced labour, slave labour. The whole thing was contracted out to Organisation Tot, that's T-O-D-T, an organisation taught were employed by the Third Reich as civil and military engineering experts. All those massive gun emplacements that you saw all over the place, in France and all over, they were built by organisation taught. And on Alderney, as elsewhere, they were built by slaves. And they were on a starvation diet. They were beaten. They were just misused and mistreated the whole time. They were just to be sacrificed to Hitler's demand that Alderney would become part of the Atlantic Wall, that which is to say uh, the whole string of defences that were supposed to defend the whole of the European continent, basically from invasion from the Atlantic coast. And so the, the slaves were there, they were building armoured towers, bunkers, you know, underground defences, casements for guns, all over, so that from the air... Alderney began to look like it had been, I don't know, infected by some kind of dreadful psoriasis. And for a while, it was the most heavily defended square miles of territory in the Third Reich. There was nowhere more defended physically than Alderney in the Channel Islands. Did Alderney have such a great strategic importance that it had to be so heavily defended? Well, it was, as previously mentioned, it was closest to Britain. So it looked like the place that might be a spearhead for the arrival of, of a, a seaborne invasion force. But the Channel Islands in general were heavily fortified and heavily defended. You see it all over to this day. Because the sort of things that were put in place, all that reinforced concrete, metres thick, you need explosives to get rid of it. So a huge amount of it is still there. In a thousand years' time, <laughs> it might still be there. So heavily dug in was it all. But the point is, the tragedy of Alderney is that Alderney became a place of death. For obvious reasons, it's hard to be precise about what happened. The captives there, the slave force, were being worked to death. And relatively soon after the end of the war, it was acknowledged that there were at least 400 of the slaves had been worked or beaten to death. But the SS were there. Hitler's elite SS were on Alderney. And there were two concentration camps at Silt and Norderney. And records kept by MI19, which is, you know, military intelligence on the British side, interviews that were made with survivors after the war are kept by MI19. And they reveal dreadful things. There's at least two crucifixions. So at least two people were nailed to crosses. Any escapees, as if they were going to go anywhere, were hunted down with dogs. There were reports of them being finished off with knives and the butts of rifles rather than being shot. So as I say, there are known graves of around 400 
but rumours persist to this day that there might have been thousands or even tens of thousands and the bodies dumped at sea. It's speculative, but the possibility is strong because of the numbers of people that passed through Alderney. Alderney and the rest were liberated in 1945 after the war and uh, and people came back, you know, because the people who'd been evacuated, people like Butch, they were desperate to get home. And so they mostly all came back. And there's no denying that the Nazi occupation of the Channel Islands was an embarrassment for the British government because it was the only bit of the British territory that Hitler got his hands on. And so it was less said, soonest mended, I think, was the attitude. But those that came back when they were reunited with those who had stayed and collaborated, there was ill feeling to say the least. And there were numerous local women who'd stayed behind, who'd had relationships with German soldiers and they'd had babies. There were a number of babies born and there were now children being raised by the women with the fathers long gone. And the women were called jerry bags and they were shunned and there were incidents of tarring and featherings and beatings of women and others who were deemed to have got into bed, literally or metaphorically, with the occupying force. But it was one of those situations where, what are you going to do? It's like the immovable object meets the unstoppable force. You know, these, these two elements came together and they all wanted to stay. And so gradually there was just a process by which what had happened between 1940 and 1945 was just smothered. Swept under the carpet, and as time began to pass, for good or ill, that was deemed to be the best thing to do. Let's just get on with life. And gradually a, a new status quo was established because the objective was just to get back to normal. And, you know, and, and to be honest, you go there now, several generations later, and Alderney's lovely. <laughs> That's the strange thing. There's all these bizarre, obviously, because the you know the reinforced concrete is still there. I mean, there's a weird thing, a tower, an observation tower on a headland. It's, they call it the Odeon. Uh, this sort of futuristic thing. It, to me, it looks like Robocop's helmet. It looks like a giant version of Robocop from the original movie has popped his head up above the headland. And everywhere you go, there's evidence of organisation tots, many, many fortifications and constructions, but... Alderney was and still is a, a beautiful little place, you know, with beautiful beaches. People who live there, who lived there before the war and who've lived there since, they talk about the Alderney feeling and emotion that people express, th those who love where they live. And I suppose it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, when I was, I was there, I, I met and interviewed an elderly Jewish Frenchman and he had been there as part of the workforce and had survived. Monsieur David Tratt was his name. And we, we sat with him where the Norderney camp had been. He had been held in Norderney. And it's now a caravan park. So where, where there was once a concentration camp, you know, there's now caravans. And it was quite surreal to be where people were having holidays and children were running around and laughing and playing on swings and running back and forth to the beach. And you knew that between 1940 and 1945, all manner of people had been brought there and worked or beaten or tortured to death. 
It's a very strange feeling. However, I suppose you do say that life has to go on and it, and it is probably right to reclaim beautiful places and to make them beautiful again. And there's a feeling as well when you're on Alderney that, or on the Channel Islands that they were briefly lost. They fell to the dark side, but they were reclaimed and made... They were made right again and made ours again. And I think there's about 150,000 people live out there. It's well populated and there's lovely lifestyles to be had. But I remember thinking when I was out there and, and having seen it come back to life, it was as though during the war years that there were seeds buried deep out of reach of Hitler's winter and they just waited. And after Hitler was gone, after that Third Reich winter was gone, they came back and greened the place again. And at the same time, the concrete's still there, the barbed wire. You know, sometimes if you dig a hole in Alderney, you'll find rusting barbed wire, rusting steel breaking through. And in the same way that when you walk about the fields of France and you can still, in a ploughed field, you'll still find bullets and shell fragments from the First World War, it's hard to imagine that no matter how much time passes that every last trace of the Third Reich will ever be gone from Alderney. And that might be right. I remember thinking it's like a tattooed number on, on someone's wrist. It's indelible what happened in Alderney, and maybe it should be, so that what's there remains as a permanent reminder. And above all else, Alderney's a reminder of how close Hitler came. We tell ourselves that we held Hitler at bay. You know, remembering Dad's army, at the start of it, you know, you would see the little British flag pulled back onto the British mainland, and the German flags were there on the edge of France, kind of fainting and throwing punches, but never quite getting across. And we tell ourselves that we held them off and then we reinvaded and got rid of them. But there's no denying the fact that they did get onto a bit of Britain. They did get to the Channel Islands. And what they did while they were there is a stark warning about what Hitler had in mind for the world. He was mostly contained on mainland Europe, but he did make it onto British territory and people were starved and tortured and beaten to death. And one or two of them were hung up and crucified. So it's a salutary story, but it's also a place of renewal and recovery. And more than anything else, maybe you go to Alderney and you're reminded just how precious the archipelago is, the Channel Islands and the greater British archipelago, but it's also fragile. And we came close to losing it before, and the message is that you have to remain on guard. Does the passage of time and the softening of memories help forgiveness? It's a difficult, it's a difficult philosophical question, I suppose, because yes, you do want to... It's almost like you want to take bleach to something and, and, and remove the stain completely. And the passage of time and the, and the comings and goings of newer, younger generations uh, means that what was done by the Nazis in the Channel Islands becomes fainter and fainter and less and less of it is there. But it was so terrible what was done, not just on Alderney, but, you know, the Third Reich, what Hitler had in mind, that kind of totalitarian ideology, you mustn't forget it. So there would come a point where you would say, do you want any generation to completely forget what Hitler did? And I think the answer is no. You need to be reminded of it because it's in us. By in us, I mean it's in the human species. That appetite for that kind of behaviour 
authoritarianism, totalitarianism, treating people as expendable in the face of an ideology, that is in our nature. And it would be foolish, desperately foolish, to get to the point where every last trace of it was expunged and erased, because that way forgetfulness lies. And you need to keep it. Like the tattoo on the wrist of a survivor from Auschwitz. You need to remember. Memory is key. It's a difficult balance, isn't it? How to heal and move on, but at the same time remembering the horror and the lessons. Yes, uh-huh. it, and it's, it's, how, it's how fast it comes, how fast it happens. The early decades of the, of the 20th century, people came through the First World War and, and maybe a lot of people were tricked into thinking, well, we're safe now, it's all over. And then, like a storm that hadn't completed itself, there was a calm that lasted 21 years from 1918 to 1939, but then the storm blew up again, even bigger than before, and was even more catastrophic in its damage. But it whipped up so fast, really, It came again so quickly, and it's important to remember that that kind of ideology can get up a momentum and change the world in the blinking of an eye. And you have to be watchful, and you have to be mindful. And what happened on Alderney is a monument to what can happen, and that which must be remembered forever. A lonely forgotten shingle spit, the largest in Europe. Stark, isolated beauty. A place tucked away from prying eyes. Perfect for secret military experiments. Revolutionary parachutes and Britain's first atomic bomb. Strange lights and rumours of UFOs. Fear of nuclear war and experimental radar. US and British military scientists joining forces as the Cold War encroaches. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book, It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.